path of, of great purpose and blessing. And Father, as we study this passage, as we learn about your heart for us to make us loving like your son, I pray that this will encourage those who need the encouragement, convict those who need the conviction, that your word will speak powerfully, powerfully, powerfully to us today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Fred grew up in a weak church, and as a teenager, he drifted away from the church and got into a life of partying and then drugs that lasted well into his 20s. Nonetheless, his faithful mother still prayed for him, took him to the throne of grace on a daily basis, begging for the salvation of her son, and and one night, Fred came down from a high and just went into a full-on panic. He started freaking out. He was frightened. He was seeing things, and he called his mother. His mother shared the gospel with him, and at last, he finally got it. He became a Christian. He was saved. He was born again. And sure, Hallelujah, right? And shortly after that, he got a copy of a John MacArthur study Bible and began to listen to John MacArthur on the radio as well as R.C. Sproul on the radio, and he began to go to his old church and help out with the youth. He really connected well with the youth. He would always challenge them to live a robust Christian life, not make the same mistakes that he made. All the while, he was growing in his theological awareness, and his youth pastor called in sick and asked if he could preach for the youth group on Sunday morning. And so Fred watched Paul Washer's shocking youth message ten consecutive times. And for the entire Sunday school hour, he goes off on the youth group for their shallow, unrepentant, worldly, wicked ways. Staring at them angrily, growling, using the Bible to scare them into heaven. Well, the youth staff wasn't sure about this approach. Then they talked to the youth pastor, and the youth pastor tried to sit down and talk to Fred. Fred got very defensive. They accused the church of being very shallow. He pointed out that the youth ministry has all these worldly methods of ministry. The pastor doesn't defend the sovereignty of God and salvation. And the worship team uses Hillsong. He's done. He's going to go off and find a biblical church. And so he bounces from church to church to church, but he seems to find something wrong with every one of them. And so he decides that he has been called to a certain kind of ministry. He goes on Facebook, and he uses his Facebook ministry as a discernment ministry. When you go to his Facebook page, you see out-of-context sound bites of various popular pastors. You find quotes from Spurgeon and John Calvin. He's defending the doctrines of grace. He goes off on different religions that teach a works-based theology. And through his online ministry, he begins to form a little community and meets one of the ladies who follows him. They have a long-distance relationship, and then they get married. Now, she thought she was going to marry a very godly man, but what she found was this guy is a professional critic. Criticizes her cooking, criticizes her walk with the Lord, criticizes her availability. Now, eventually, they have a child, 
and he's a distant father. He comes home from his fifth job in three years, ignores his wife, and ignores her, their, his son, goes straight to Facebook, and he defends the gospel. Now, if you had 10 minutes with somebody like Fred, what would you tell him? If Jesus had 10 minutes with someone like Fred, what would he tell him? Well, in Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25, we see Jesus having a conversation with a discernment minister. Did you know that? And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. He's going to be checking on Jesus, making sure that he gets things right. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, this parable of the Good Samaritan is probably one of the most famous short stories in Western civilization. It probably rivals the prodigal son as the most famous of all of Jesus' parables. A good Samaritan has kind of worked its way into the English language, right? You know, there's a hurricane, flooding came, a family was stranded on the roof until a good Samaritan came by in his bass boat and rescued the family, right? We, we know the story. We have Samaritan funds. You might contribute to a Samaritan's purse ministry. You might use Samaritan's ministry for your, your home insurance, but this is more than a story about just being kind to strangers, right? It's actually part of an evangelistic conversation. See, Jesus is a skilled evangelist. He has insight into the people who he is talking to, to almost custom-tailor a gospel conversation just for them. For instance, remember the, the story of the rich young ruler? Who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of goes through, well, um, 
You know, have you gone through this commandment and this commandment and this commandment? And the rich young ruler says, all these I have kept. What do I lack? And then he said, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Now, why does he say that to this rich young ruler? Because he had a covetous heart. And Jesus is confronting the covetous heart. He knew that that man had to relinquish the, the idol of mammon before he can have eternal life. Now, this is another example of Jesus using a custom-tailored confrontation. He is talking to a lawyer who is putting him to the test, making sure he's getting the right answer. And when Jesus affirms the right answer, he points out that this lawyer is not living the right answer. You see, within all forms of religion, and we see this in the modern church as well, there is a being right makes you righteous. Getting the right answer makes you righteous. And that often leads to almost a, a disconnect where people who are part of the knowledge puffs up crowd lack the love aspect of our faith. And, and there's, a, there's a contradiction, right? You might have somebody who is very serious about defending that you are saved by grace through faith alone. Now that is a true statement. They advocate for it. You put them in a room with a Catholic and they show you exactly where that Catholic gets it wrong. But they do it in a way that's very ungracious and unloving, right? The message doesn't match the messenger. Or somebody is all about big God theology, having a high view of God, affirming his greatness, his sovereignty, all those other elements, but they are very arrogant in how they advocate for it, right? If we think that God is great, there will be a necessary humility that comes with it. And so Jesus here, he's basically addressing a representative of those who are wise and understanding. Those who get the right answer. Lawyers are known for having all the answers, but Jesus points out the insufficiency of his application of the answer. He has a custom-made gospel presentation. If you were to sit down with Fred, just like he sat down with this lawyer, he would tell them, tell them something shocking, that you are saved by love. You are saved by love, and then he'd go on, and he does describe the kind of love that saves. See, to be righteous means more than having the right answer, Right? is to have the right response to the right answer. And that shows in how you live your life. Are you loving? So let's go to this first point. You are saved by love. Look at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to have eternal life? So Jesus apparently is having a group discussion. It's very common that you don't raise your hand, you stand up when you have a question. And so this lawyer, this expert in the law, this person who understand all the intricacies and probably read all the commentaries on the law, he knew what he was talking about. And he's not necessarily looking for an answer, but testing whether or not Jesus would give the right answer. He stands up and asks a really important question, right? Teacher, rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, whether he had malintent or not, this is a good question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He affirms 
that there is going to be a coming kingdom, a coming judgment, and on the other side of that judgment is eternal life. And he's asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus gives him an answer. Now, before we look at his answer, how would you answer this question? If somebody were to ask you, what must I do to have eternal life? I would imagine your answer would be, well, you need to understand that you have been created by God and you have sinned against him because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of your sin, you deserve divine wrath. If you die in that state, you will go to hell when you die. But, but God, because he loved us, sent his son Jesus Christ to live the life you should have lived, to die the death you should have died. When he was on the cross, divine wrath that was due to you was poured out on him. And then God raised him from the dead to show that he paid that penalty in full. And if you turn from your sin and follow him in faith, you will have eternal life, right? That's how I'd answer that question, right? Isn't that how you would? So here, this lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is, this is Jesus' answer. But he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Right? He directs him to Scripture. A discernment minister would be very pleased with this. Okay. You're directing me to the right place. Scripture, you pass that test, Jesus. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer fuses two commands together. The first one is based off of the great command. It's called the Shema, which is Hebrew for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's from Deuteronomy 6.5. Now, when you hear about the heart, right, that's the command control center of the body. The, the soul is the life force. The strength is the ability you have to carry it out. And this lawyer adds mind for good measure, which speaks of mental planning. This is a comprehensive commitment where every part of you, who you are and what you do, is dedicated towards the love of God. And then that same word love, right, for God you only says love in one place, right? But there's two objects. One is God, and the other one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And, he, and this is not to say that you need to learn how to love yourself, right? It's more of a call to empathetic love. You imagine how somebody else would be loved in this moment, and you love them that way, right? So those are the two great commands. So he gives this command to Jesus, and Jesus says, not bad, right? You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, if you obey these two commandments, you will have eternal life. Now, a discernment minister would say, you know, like Fred would say, that sounds like works-based salvation, Jesus. I thought we were saved by faith. Well, Jesus does affirm that. In Luke 7:50, he says to the hemorrhaging woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Clearly, there is a connection between faith and love, right? Here's a question. Can you have faith in God and faith in Jesus and not love him? Can you say, I believe in, I believe in God. I have faith in him, but I don't love him. Right? To have faith is to love him. There's two sides of the same coin, right? And, and you even look at the literary context of this command. 
It follows after Luke 10, 22, where Jesus tells his followers, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father or the father is except the son and anyone who chooses to reveal him. So to know God the father is only possible because Christ has chosen to reveal the father to that person. So you know the Father through the Son. You love the Father through the Son. In the literary context, it's very clear that Jesus is saying, by loving God, you love me. Right? When you love me, you love the Father, and you will have eternal life. Now, this lawyer doesn't quite understand that. He's not given the literary context like the audience is, or like Jesus has. In his mind, it was just a matter of obeying, let's say, the Old Testament law. And those two laws, love the Father, right, love God, and love your neighbor, is really a summary of the entirety of the law, right? They, if you were to look at the Ten Commandments, right, all of them kind of fit into one of those two things. For instance, do not worship a graven image. That would be a love God command. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. That is another love God command. Adultery would be a love your neighbor command. Do not murder is a love your neighbor command. And the idea is that the whole law is an exposition of those two central commands. But all of it at its heart is about loving God and loving your neighbor. When you have this heart, God is pleased and you will be given eternal life. Do this, lawyer, and you will live. Now, clearly the lawyer can't disagree with this because he gave that answer. But there's something about this command that unsettles him. And he asks a follow-up question, which brings us to the kind of love that saves. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, he just put Jesus to the test. And then Jesus turns around and says, well, why don't you just do what you just said? And perhaps this lawyer knows that he doesn't do what he just said. And so he tries to lower the scope of the command, okay? So when you say, I guess when I said, love your neighbor, who, who is my neighbor? Does that apply to Gentiles? Does it apply to Samaritans? Does it apply to the people in my village? I mean, how many people do I have to love? How, Jesus, what's the line here? Because I, I just want to, you know, just kind of meet my fill and just not necessarily go beyond it, right? He's trying to limit this command. And so Jesus answers the question with a very, very famous story. He starts in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and leaving him for dead. Now that road from Jerusalem to Jericho is descending. It goes down 3,300 feet over 17 miles. It winds its way through rocky crags and canyons and, and it's surrounded by caves. It was actually a very dangerous road, even at that time. It was like going through the ghetto. And this unnamed man, his identity doesn't really matter, is accosted by multiple bandits. They strip him of his clothes. They punch him, kick him to make sure that he doesn't follow them. 
and they end up leaving him half dead. And so he's lying on the side of the road with chipped teeth, black eyes, bleeding bodies, and broken bones. He is in an absolute helpless estate in exposure in the open sun. If something doesn't happen soon, he'll go from being half dead to all the way dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, right? All seems lost until a priest shows up. Now, you have to keep in mind, a priest was at the top of the social pyramid in Israel at that time. They did not have a legitimate monarch that they looked to. They did not have an active prophet to look to. The highest person who occupied the highest rung on the social ladder would have been a priest. Now, to be a priest, you had to be born into the right family. And and they would explain it as God chose this person to be a priest because he gave him this noble birth. The priest would not only be sacrificing at the temple, he'd be teaching people and instructing people in the law. He was the one who represented God to the people. He was their intercessor. And so, he sees this man, and what does he do? And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest just walked on by. Well, there must have been a good reason, right? Priests don't... Don't do that. And some commentators speculate that it might have been ritual purity or something like that. There's no mention of that. He saw the need. He just walked on the other side to make sure that he did not encounter the man. The next person to come along would be a Levite. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, to be a priest, you had to be a Levite, but not all Levites were priests. While the priest would be the one who actually executed the sacrifice, a Levite would do some preparation. They would do crowd control. They did security. They did the singing. They were kind of like the physician's assistants and the nurses to the priest who would be the doctor, right? Still a very noble, sought-after position. But he sees the man, and he walks by on the other side. So here's a man still bleeding, still half-dead. Both the Levite and the priest probably came from discharging the temple duties because they were going down the road, right, from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is actually where, uh, the site of where a lot of priests lived. But they did nothing. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, for the reader of Luke, this would have been a very surprising turn. Because remember the last time we read about Samaritans? It it happens in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, right? So far, so good. But the people did not receive him because he set his face towards Jerusalem. So these Samaritans in the previous encounter hear that Jesus is coming. They said, where is he going? Jerusalem? Oh, he's not welcome here. Now, what's up with that? 
Now, for those of you who did not hear that message, I think maybe two months ago, the Samaritans were descendants of the northern tribes of Israel. When the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes, they took the bulk of them away, but those who remained intermarried with the Assyrians. And so they were a, a mongrel people, right? When you read the Old Testament, you see all these genealogies. Who you are related to and your bloodlines were very, very important. But these Samaritans had corrupted bloodlines. And so they were ostracized, not really welcome to do temple worship. And so they set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Now, what's interesting about the Samaritans is they actually abided by the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Their theological dispute was that Jerusalem was not the center of temple worship. It should be in Mount Gerizim. And the Jews did not like this at all. They had an antagonistic relationship. In fact, that temple on Mount Gerizim was destroyed by the Jews. There was some bad blood. Yet they believed themselves to be faithful. And yet the Jews couldn't stand them. Remember the reaction of James and John when they heard that they, the Samaritans rejected Jesus? They said, Lord, do you want us to tell a fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You just say the word, Jesus, and we'll take them out. No one's going to treat you that way. Right? There is antagonism. Yet here is a Samaritan who sees a man at the side of the road, half dead in great need. And in verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Right? So disinfecting the wounds with wine, giving him comfort with the oil, bandaging up his wounds, putting him on his pack animal, going to an inn. And he was personally taking care of him. When he had to leave, we read in verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii, two days' wages for a working man, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. He basically started a tab and said, I'll add to it. You do what you need to take care of this man. He did everything he could with the resources he had to take care of this man who was naked and bleeding and left for dead. So Jesus, after telling this story, turns to the lawyer and says in verse 36, he asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, he did not answer the question, who is my neighbor? He was more focused on this lawyer, asking him, are you a good neighbor? Are you a good neighbor? And the lawyer is almost like he can't say the word Samaritan. He says in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. Now, what's interesting about this parable is it's not so much a parable about loving the Samaritans. It's not about loving the outcast. It's a parable about Showing mercy to a man made in the image of God. And the purpose of the Samaritan is to show that it's actually the outcast who get this, not those 
who are wise and understanding. And I use that phrase on purpose because let's go back to Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In the same hour, this is after the 72 go out on this trial mission and come back with the news that God's power is at work. And he says, Jesus says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And little children is not necessarily the children's ministry. It's those with no social status. Those who rose to the top in Israel were those who were wise and understanding, those who were learned, the teachers of the law. People like this lawyer who don't seem to get it. They equate being right with righteousness. But here we have a Samaritan. Now, I want you to know he doesn't use the term Gentile. right? These Gentiles who would pray to Zeus clearly did not have an understanding of the Old Testament revelation of God. But you can make an argument that the Samaritan did, right? He, he used the same five books of the Bible as the temple authorities. He ate kosher, he observed the Sabbath to the best of his ability, he sought to honor it. He just believed that the locus of worship is not Jerusalem, it should be Mount Gerizim. And yet he was the one who showed mercy. He was the one who proved to be his neighbor. If you were to rewrite this parable... In a modern context, it goes something like this. A man was driving through the ghetto when he is carjacked. A gang of thieves pull him out of the car, strip him of his clothes, his watch, his wallet, beat him up, kick him, leave him half dead so that he can't call the police. The next morning... A seminary professor walks by, one who is on the national conference circuit. You've probably read his books. They've been translated in 10 different languages. He understands the Bible. He teaches the Bible. He teaches people and how to do ministry. And so he sees the man, and he walks on by. After him, a Bible-teaching pastor comes by. This is a man who does expositional preaching, has a biblical philosophy of ministry. His church is growing and thriving. Many people look to him for how to pastor a church, and he sees this man on the side of the road, and and he walks on by. But then an immigrant janitor walks by who attends Full Fire Assembly Church or Full Fire Assembly Celebration Center, right? He's, he's a Pentecostal. Gets a lot of things wrong. But he sees this man, and he comes to his aid, gives him first aid, puts him in his car, he drives him to the hospital. He doesn't know if the man has insurance or not, but he goes ahead and put, gives him his credit card and says, just charge everything to my account and make sure he's taken care of. Now, which of these people really gets the Christian faith? Who's the person who really understands it? It's not the wise and understanding. It's not the people who get the right answer. It's the people who make the most out of the right answer that they know. It is those who show mercy. And Jesus says to this lawyer, 
you go and do likewise. I mean, ultimately, this is a call to conversion, isn't it? Jesus is not content to just let the wise and understanding go to hell. He is reaching out to the wise and understanding, appealing to his conscience, using his words, calling out to him that if you don't have the heart of love, you're missing something. And you know, this is actually consistent with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels that have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. That's Paul. John, 1 John 3, 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? James, the Lord's brother, notice I'm using different authors here, makes the same point. James 2, 15 through 16, If a brother and sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, works of love in this case, is dead. Right? We are saved by grace through faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Right? The call to faith is really a call to love God. And if you love God, who else will you love? You will love your neighbor. Now, I've had the privilege of, of mentoring and discipling many young men. And I think one thing that's really exciting for them is when they, when they discover theology. Right? It's like something awakens in their mind. They love putting the pieces together. They love the problem solving and, and working these things out. And sometimes their mind is just exhilarated by this exploration and they get into to theological debate. And, you know, I was, I was on the debate team when I was in high school. I understand that it's pretty exciting. Right? When you get into these back and forth conversations, you read the Bible with like, intentional purpose right you're looking for that first works i'll say this i'll say this and that is good to a certain extent right i don't want to poo poo that i went through that phase and i'm better for it now the issue is when everything becomes about predestination there's a phrase we like to use called the cage stage right that's when when somebody is always being very argumentative about this doctrine and this doctrine and this doctrine the older calvinists want to put the guy in a cage and leave him there until it stops. Right? And, and, and this is what I've learned. You know, how do you minister to those people in the cage stage? And that's to double down on the call to love. Because ultimately, that's what matters, right? It's to double down on the call to love. That really, the true metric of your spirituality, whether or not you really understand this, is not how many right answers you get. But how rightly do you live? Do you really understand the call to love? And when you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, I mean, we do see five elements of love. The first element we see is that love takes the initiative, okay? Love takes the initiative. Look at verse 31, now by chance. Is there such a thing as chance? Now by chance. And so it happened. God put the priest, you know, bear with me here, I know it's Jesus' story, and gave him the opportunity to minister to a need right in front of him. Now, so often people will read the Good Samaritan and it's kind of like, well, who is my neighbor? Like, do I need to give to the people of South Sudan? Uh, how about the people who are being trafficked in Colombia? 
This is what I would say to that. If by chance you have a need in front of you and have the means of meeting it, what's your heart and what do you do? Instead of trying to figure out who is and who isn't your neighbor, who has God placed in your life who you can help, who you can minister to, who can come alongside? And sometimes it's more, more than just like writing a check and forgetting about it, right? Sometimes it's in the context of a relationship, of really investing your time to help this other person. And that brings us to the second one, love is generous, right? This man did not give hoping to get a tax deduction. He saw a need. He freely gave of his resources. He's willing to give as much as it took to make sure this man got the help that he needed. Thirdly, you see that love does not discriminate. Now, when he saw this bleeding man who stripped naked, there were no indicators of, of where he was from. And so the Good Samaritan doesn't come up to the man and, and shake him and just say, excuse me, sir, I see that you need some help, but before I help you, I want to know, should the temple be in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? What was that? Gerizim? Okay, you're good. Let's go. Excuse me, I noticed that you're in help. I want, I want to know, are you going to vote for Trump or not? Do you affirm or disapprove of gay marriage? I need to know before I help you. Right? A lot of times it's this tendency to want to help your own. Everyone who needs help is made in the image of God. It doesn't matter if they have blue hair. If they need help, Christian love and compassion is moved to have mercy. Fourth, Love tends to be physical in nature. Sometimes you need to meet their physical needs. Now, I am an evangelist. It is important that as Christians we seek to relieve all suffering, especially eternal suffering, right? But there are times when you do need to minister to the body as well. Any of you know who Amy Carmichael is? She was a, a missionary to India who basically had a home for those who were rejected by society, had a real fascinating ministry. And when she was raising money, some donor wanted to give her ministry money, but he, he made it very clear, I only want this to go towards evangelism, right? Not for physical needs, just evangelism. And this is what she said. Well, one can't save and then pitchfork souls into heaven. There are times when I heartily wish we could. As for buildings, souls in India at least, are more or less securely fastened into bodies, Bodies can't be left to lie about in the open, and as you can't get the souls out of the deal, can't get the souls out and deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. Right? If you're going to minister to the souls, sometimes that does mean that you minister to the body as well. And then, fourthly, or I guess fifthly, and this is probably the one that's most convicting, at least for me, is love is inconvenienced. The Samaritan was on a journey. Some speculate that he was a merchant. And he took at least a day out of, a day out of his journey to minister to this man. Now, this parable prompted a fascinating experiment in the early 70s. It's called the Princeton Experiment. What researchers did was they took 40 Princeton Seminary students and divided them in half. They told half of them that you are going to be preaching 
on theological job opportunities. You're going to give a lecture on theological job opportunities. And to the other half, they're going to preach a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And then what they told them is, once they finish their lesson, you actually need to preach to an audience in another building. Now, with a third, they said, you've got plenty of time. To another third, they said, if you leave right now, you'll just make it. And to the last third, they said, you should have been there 10 minutes ago. And then on the way to the other building where they're going to preach the sermon, they planted a guy who would start coughing violently and clutching his stomach in obvious pain. This is what they found. They found that 63% Well, first of all, they they found that there was no difference between whether or not you're preaching on the Good Samaritan or job opportunities. But 63% of low-hurry seminarians stopped. 45% of intermediate-hurry seminarians stopped. And 10% of high-hurry seminarians stopped. Sorry to help. You know, I can't really help right now. I need to preach on the Good Samaritan. Right? There's an urgency. And you see the irony, right? And frankly, one of the reasons why is they have a false sense of urgency. It is more important for them to meet that time commitment than to minister to people. See, there is actually a greater urgency that all of us should have. You look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23, right? That everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Often we think that the workers of lawlessness are the closet drunks and drug abusers, the sexually immoral. I'm not sure if they'd be asking this question. Those who are practicing lawlessness were those who are not abiding by the law of love and loving their neighbor, right? There's nothing more urgent than loving your neighbor and meeting the need of the person in front of you. Now, if this is you where you you don't do this and you are deeply convicted and think, I have failed, I have good news for you. Notice how Jesus takes time to reach out to this lawyer, to talk to him, to confront him on the very issue that he needs. Jesus loves unloving people. And when someone comes to him There's also a promise where these non-loving people will be remade. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Which means when you know God, when you know Christ, when you love Christ and love God, a miracle takes place where you will become like him and you'll be capable of that love. And should you fail, which we all do, the blood of Jesus will cover us of all sins. And yes, knowledge is important to know God is to love him. Right? I do not want to diminish that at all. But the proper response is, our righteousness is not defined by getting the right answer. It's defined by living out the right answer. And if the heart of the Christian life is to love God and to love your neighbor, it begins with seeing holiness as more than getting the right answer, staying away from substance abuse, staying away from sexual morality, but a radical commitment to love God by loving your neighbor. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we come before you convicted by this. But I pray that our church will be a church that really abides by the call to love. And Father, I look around and I see so many people who, while they may not think so, I think so, are, are loving people who care about the needs of others and seeks to meet them. I pray that they will be encouraged to excel still more. But for those who perhaps see a gap between their knowledge and their practice, I pray that this will be a wake-up call for them and, and that they will turn to you knowing that you love them and you care about them, that even this sermon was an act of love to, to bring the good work you began in them to completion and they will seek it. And for those on the outside, Lord, I pray that they'll be drawn to a community that loves like this because they'll be drawn to the head of the community who offered his life for their sake. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.